welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. It's another Knock On Podcast, and... This is an annual, I think this is an annual podcast, Mike, because we have to talk turkeys every spring, and uh, I don't know, I always I always look for you for hype and watch a couple of your latest videos, get pumped up, and then let you talk me into doing crazy stuff, but I got, <laughs> <laughs> I've got Mike Slinkard on the phone, longtime friend, we don't even know how long we've been friends, I think, once we've thought about it a few times. <laughs> It's been way too long, I can tell you. <laughs> it's been, um, yeah, I mean, I think we met um, when I was still playing the uh, the archery tournament game. Boy, I mean, early 2000s maybe, huh? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny looking back. Like, you think, honestly, I don't feel like it was that long ago when I competed, but once you start to actually look at dates on – like i don't know accreditations for like when i traveled i look at like my old like accreditation tags or like old mm-hmm. target faces or trophies or whatever you realize like oh okay well that was a whole nother person <laughs> i feel like a long time ago i know i was i was just uh, doing some cleanup in the range and and i stumbled across the, my uh my um the credentials for the ESPN games in 2005. And it's like, God, is it really that long? Cause I, <laughs> I mean, that was, I, I, I didn't really compete much after that, actually. I mean, it started to roll into, to concentrate more on, more on the hunting. So man, it's been a long time. It really has. But, I know. Uh, anyway. I know yeah, it's changed so much. Fast. I actually did a podcast. Um, I did a podcast that I think will be launching today with Jay Scholes. Jay, uh, Jay was in the area and came out and him and I had never got to sit down together mm-hmm. um, and just really talk about everything. But it was really fun to talk with someone who has seen the archery industry from such a different perspective. Um, you know, someone that's kind of more or less been on the road as a rep and been, um, I don't know, you and I have always been on the kind of we've been behind the manufacturing door for so long Mm -hmm. that i feel like it was a very different perspective and it was really fun to talk to him because just his stories were predated mine so it was really cool to talk with someone who'd you know been been at pse when it was still in illinois or you know went down before earl and ann hoyt moved from st louis and just some of that really cool stuff yeah, the history is pretty crazy, and I yeah, Jay was part of all of that stuff, you know, more on the sales side of stuff, and I bet it is a different perspective for sure. Um, but uh, you know, you really think about archery, you know, modern archery, it really, it really hasn't been all that long, you know, when you look at it just, you know, I guess evolution of of how businesses go. I mean, gosh, I can remember, I actually got to when I was when I was probably couple of years out of high school 3d was just coming out um literally the, the the critter factory targets down in california i mean they made a huge splash out here in the west and i actually got to go shoot a tournament uh, in northern california and um you know i actually got to shoot uh, in the same group with tom jennings and it was like holy crap you know that was something that was just uh 
you know, I, I'll never forget it. Um, I've got a couple of pictures that, uh, you know, when, when we were shooting there and, and, uh, but yeah, it, but you know, I mean, Tom was one of the very first, you know, him and of course Pete, you know, and, oh, yeah. and, uh, you, you know, but I mean, they were some of the very, very first, you know, people that, you know, as far as the archery that we know, you know, with compound bows and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 55. I'm getting kind of old, but man, I, you just think about it. The whole, the whole thing's happened pretty much in my lifetime. So <laughs> it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Really? Yeah. When I look back, I, you know, I, I guess I feel like I was a little bit on the front end of like when the ASAs and IBOs kind of really hit their, I don't know. I don't know if I should say the their prime, but it definitely hit the time where I feel like they were at their funnest um, because there was characters there, you know, like back when Wayne Pearson was running the ASA, mm-hmm. he did a really good job of running, you know, there were those, those little classes that he would put on for rookies to where when you came in, they'd put on a thing like, Hey, you're, you're going to be a professional archer. Here's some of the things that can help carry you and, you know, help, you know, promote the professional archery aspect of this sport. And mm-hmm. there were just, you know, these characters. And I talked with Jay about that, you know, the Johnny Heaths, the Jeff Hopkins, mm-hmm. the Dave Steps, <laughs> yep. the Ulmers, you know, they were all these characters. And as an amateur growing up and watching these guys in the shoot off, it was very, very, um, I don't know. I just felt like at that time, I really, really thought that they had just this massive impact on the direction of the sport. And so many of the things that we do now, um, when it comes to, you know, having multiple releases or shooting light points or having a Mm -hmm. blinder over your eye or, you know, having these different types of stabilizer setups, like all these kind of originated back what I refer to at least in like the heyday of Mm -hmm. some of the creation of that sport where there was a lot of other pros watching what that one good one was doing. And then by the next week, everybody was changing over. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But the pro class was, was really big too. I mean, it was, um, I don't know. It was, uh, and it seemed like then, and you know, maybe it's because I was younger and and I was you know trying to trying to make a mark in it a little bit if I could, and and uh, you know those guys were like larger than life. I mean, you know, you take you know Burley Hall or or Randy Randy Omer's still my my hero. It probably always will be, you know. But yep. uh, you know, and, and going back and just uh, just watching those guys, and, and the cool thing is you didn't really know what you were going to see. You know, as far as equipment, I mean, gosh, you might see you might see anything attached to somebody's bow, and if he was winning, everybody'd have it the next week. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun time. Um, I mean, when I started, when I first started shooting, uh, what really predated 3D, really, because I can remember there used to be a, a big tournament that was called the Bow Hunters Rendezvous, and it was out here in Oregon. And uh, it would draw about six, seven hundred people, and they that club actually made targets um, out of cardboard, and they would laminate cardboard together and, and put like rubber inner tubes in the middle and all kind of stuff. So they're about probably five inches thick, and they would put hair on them and and you put a, a wire scoring ring and 
And uh, if I remember, I was like, there's, I want to say there was 75 or 100 targets in this course. And um, everybody would go, and it was a big camp out. And, you know, it was just uh, unbelievably fun. And it was all people just trying to be better bow hunters is all it was. It really was. The competition aspect really was, it was there, but it really wasn't anything else. They had you know, all kinds of novelty stuff that probably killed everybody's form and everything like that, running deer and, you know, shooting discs out of the air and clout shoots. And just a, it was just a great time. Um, you know, they, they had, you know, a, I remember they had a cougar in a tree that was way up in a pine tree. God, I mean, like 80, 90 feet up. It was straight up at it and that kind of thing. And But, you know, that's where I started as far as the, you know, the the – kind of the competitive side of things i mean i started there just trying to be a better bow hunter as most of us did and kind of went into the to the 3d and i can remember when 3d targets became readily available i mean it just i mean it was a really cool time because it was just such a big almost a novel thing that nobody had ever been able to do because up until then we were just you know i mean you'd get a a hay bale and you, you know you put some bullseye targets on and that's what you shot and uh so it really added an aspect to it. So it's it was really cool to be able to come up through that. And, you know, I was in my early 20s at that time and, and uh, you know, be able to really chase it from, from that all the way through to, you know, playing IBO and ASA stuff, you know, later on and, you know, even, even the ESPN games and all that stuff. So it, it's been neat. It really has. I'm fortunate to have been born when I was because I got to see some really cool stuff in archery. And, uh, <laughs> It, it's been it's been a fun ride, no doubt. What's some of the cooler stuff you think that that's happened here in the last few years that would have been a game changer back in the day? Oh well, well, I I mean, I, how about rangefinders? Uh, that's what I was gonna say. Rangefinders has changed the game completely. <laughs> um, in my opinion, the rangefinder is probably the the biggest game changer, and I'll put that right there with the, with the compound bow, honestly, because. I mean, I know guys that, that, especially back in those days that were still shooting recurves, that if they knew how far it was, I mean, they were deadly. Um, a guy named Rod Schooler was the one of the guys who got my dad started uh, in archery years and years ago, way back in the 60s. And, and he was kind of the, he was the Terry and Michelle before Terry and Michelle kind of. Rod Schooler and his wife Ann were, you know, they were recurve shooters, but they were, I mean, they were, you know, world-class shooters. And and uh, that was the, the the people that actually taught my dad how to shoot. Of course, I learned how to shoot from him, and I spent a lot of time with Rod and, as well. And and uh, just a neat guy. And and you know, I mean, that was the the thing. If uh, if he knew how far it was, I mean, he'd shoot your knocks off and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you know how far it was. And, but I mean, if he didn't, yeah, I mean, I mean, he used to go hunting and. And uh, there's a, a place called Heart Mountain here in, in Eastern Oregon. It was, it was just iconic archery place, huge box. I'm just, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, but uh, you know, Rod, you would think he would be able to kill these big bucks all the time, but like I said, he couldn't judge yardage. So you know, he was just at a at a at a huge disadvantage. So had he had a rangefinder, I mean, he, he would have he would have been a mule deer guru as 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 well as a, as a lot of other people at that time because that place there was holding the kind of mule deer there I've never seen in my life since. I mean, when I was a kid, there was, you know, there it was nothing to see eight or ten bucks every morning that were over thirty inches of price score close to two hundred. It was nuts, it really was. Do you but think they didn't? Do you think a lot of our um, 
Do you think a lot of the bigger bucks that you see right now, like, I don't know, now with social media, you you start to really see how many freaking truly trophy uh, things that are shot, you know, continually, whereas mm-hmm. I feel like back, I guess when I was internal at companies, you would see, you know, people would be sending in their pictures and you'd get an idea of like, wow, there's quite a few big deer that are shot. But now more than ever, it seems like the number of trophy, you know, quote unquote trophy class animals, it seems like it's so much higher than I've ever seen it in the past. But part of me wonders, is that because, um, is that because, there's there are rangefinders now or there is social media now to where everyone has the ability to actually be in front of uh you know to actually be in front of a i guess a, a camera or be in front of people yeah. with what they've got you know i think it's probably a combination honestly um I, there's no doubt that social media is is i mean it allows everybody to to post you know pictures and they're shared around and everything else so i think the just the sheer amount of people that are that are being able to see those big deer, you know, it's different than it used to be because it used to be if you, I mean you had to carry a you know a printed photograph around with you if you wanted to show somebody what you got last year, you know, and and uh, so it was really limited in the amount of people that that knew it, you know, knew about your success if you had it, and uh, but I mean rangefinders is definitely up the up the uh, success rates in archery. But I'm going to tell you, boy, especially, you know, I'm a mule deer guy, and big mule deer bucks, they're just, well, they're getting harder to find, number one, because, you know, mule deer have been in decline pretty much everywhere for quite a while. And so they're harder to find, and, and uh, boy, it's, you know, they're they're right up there with, with, if anything else, when they get five years old, they change, and they're not easy to get. They really aren't. So I don't know. I just think more people see the pictures, I, I think, more than anything else. I don't know if they're really killing that many more big deer. I'm sure that they may be, but I don't know. That's an interesting question, actually. I, I feel the like there's more sure. people out, and I feel like I feel like the Internet and also, you know, things like Epic Hunts or um, – dang, what's the other one with Jared? Uh, you know, Jared Lyle's thing. Epicons oh yeah, is, yeah. is Carter. Fool. Yeah, Hunt and Fool or yeah. or Epic Hunts. Like both those are putting people in way better places that they would have they had a hard out. time finding. You know, because back when everything was print ad, if you, if someone didn't run an ad in the back of the magazine or you didn't happen to, you know, just like when you and I hunted together, you know, a long, you know, quite a while ago, that was that was you traveling around knocking on a lot of doors to find a place where it's like, Hey, this is a total little elk honey hole. You know what I mean? It wasn't something that was commercialized. Whereas now I feel like people can go on a really solid hunt pretty dang easy, you know, because it's so accessible. Yeah, it is. I mean, the the amount of information out there is, is really changed and how accessible it is. I mean, well, how Google Earth, I mean, just look at that. Just from a scouting perspective, I mean, I can go to, you know, if I draw a, an elk tag or a deer tag in another state, I can spend a couple of, you know, a few hours in the evening looking at Google Earth and kind of knowing, you know, what, what kind of country I'm looking for. And chances are I'm going to go and I'm going to have a pretty good idea of where I'm going to find, you know, whatever I'm looking for. I know I did that in Nevada a few years ago. I drew a, a tag 
Um, and, uh, you know, basically I'd, I'd been in the unit a little bit, but I started just doing the Google Earth thing, and, and I found a, a little kind of a just the kind of stuff I'm looking for that I call it transition. It's not super high and it's not super low. And I ended up uh, the very first day out that evening, the f- evening of the very first day, I found a, a buck that I just became obsessed with. Um, you know, he was, you know, easily 220, 230 class. Um, I spotted him off the county road, you <laughs> know, on public ground. Damn. And I hunted him, I hunted him for three weeks, um, got two opportunities at him. And unfortunately, I didn't. The last opportunity I sat on him for about three and a half or four hours. Um, he was bedded in front of a rock, uh, 20 yards in front of me. All I had to do was stand up. And ended up some other guys had come in on the other side of the mountain and pushed some deer and, and run them right through us. And anyway, kind of blew the whole thing out. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's what, that's what it takes. I, you know, I actually turned down a 180 inch deer that year just because I was after this one. Um, and, but I couldn't have done any of that without, you know, without technology. I mean, I found it all on Google Earth. You know, I just kind of know what kind of country I'm looking for, and and that allows it. Anybody could have found him, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, if they just know what they're looking for. So, so that changed the game a lot, um, especially for out of state. I like to do a lot of out of state stuff, and and I don't really hire guides all that often. Um, and you know, like I said, it's it changed the game. I mean, it really has. It gives you a pretty good perspective of. You know, you're not you're not just taking on me in the old days. You just go out and well, that looks kind of nice. Let's just hike up there and see what it is. And you know, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. And now you don't have to guess. You kind of know what it is before you even show up. So it's been, yeah, been definitely definitely a lot easier now than it was. I was surprised. I was in Utah a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one of my buddies had had booked a um, a cougar hunt, and he was. I think the person that was supposed to go with him had to back out last minute and he, he called and asked if I would go and I hadn't done it in a long time. So I was, I was like, heck yeah, I'll come down. But I didn't, I, didn't, I only had a few days. So I kind of just said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be there a few days, but that's about it. And, um, I couldn't believe how many more people are doing that now compared to mm-hmm. back when I went on in that same area, I hunted, probably 20 years ago and when i went there this past uh you know a couple weeks ago i saw i saw multiple guys chasing cats like outfits chasing cats every single day it's just very very different i just think um i think even though they say maybe hunting isn't necessarily growing i definitely feel like people's awareness of how to do it is certainly growing and i think the amount of people that have taken it up another level is definitely growing too you know i think there's there's way more intensity to it no doubt again that comes from that comes from technology too and you know there's all kinds of all kinds of information out there i mean heck you're you're responsible for a lot of that in the archery world i mean you know it's uh used to be man if you didn't know somebody it was pretty tough to get into hunting and and that or you know of course you know a lot of people just grew up with it too and their parents and all that but you know the dog hunting particularly 
because my daughter Caitlin is into that um, for quite a few years. She's uh, got a young one now, so she kind of had to give it up for a while. I'm sure she'll get back into it. She's addicted to it. But the amount of work and training it takes to be a dog hunter is just – I didn't I, – I hadn't been around it all that much. I knew some guys that did it, but it didn't really pay attention. But when Caitlin was doing it, I mean, she had three walker hounds and – I mean, it was it was crazy the kind of work that she did to put in with those dogs to make them to make them, uh, you know, do what they needed to do. And um, it, I mean, she actually got hers uh, trained to where um, when because she's hunted bobcats here in Oregon, we can't they won't let us hunt cougars. Unfortunately, we'd have a lot more deer and elk if we could. But anyway, uh, but she would do bobcats and and uh, she got it down to where she knew. What time of night the cats were generally down, um, you know, in the creek bottoms, which is where most of the roads were, and she'd cut tracks and you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, turn her dogs loose, and those those walkers didn't bark until they jumped the cat, which was a gigantic advantage for, for a hound hunter. Because, oh yeah. I mean the track. I mean she she had several of them that were treed within a couple of minutes, you know. Um, she'd find a fresh track, turn them out. The dogs didn't do. She, of course, she had GPS collars, so they don't. She wasn't going to lose them. And uh, heck, I mean, a lot of times, cause the cat didn't even know he was in trouble till the dogs were on him. You know. Yep. And uh, it's a there's a whole whole different uh, whole different thing with that with that dog hunting. I mean, it's there's a lot more to it than people think. And yeah, I got to watch what Caitlin was doing with her dogs, and it was it, it's it's crazy. But boy, the dedication is you you've got to be fully dedicated to that. It's it's kind of crazy, but yeah. When I was out yeah. there, the guide, um, you kind of felt, in a way, you felt lazy by letting the guide go out and run some of those hills just looking for tracks. Um, mm-hmm. But honestly, if you don't live out there, and if you're not one of these people that are that are chasing cats all the time their their get up and go is freaking insane like you know like you said they they get after it on those hills and if you aren't doing it at that pace all the time it's it's actually slowing down your success opportunity because you know i just got to the point where i'm like man i'm way better off just letting you get up there and tell me when I need to be ready to rock and roll versus me thinking that, you know, I can keep up with you out here on this because it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, those guys know where to look and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot to it that goes into it. It's not just, it's, it's not pure luck that they stumble onto a track. You know, they know where to look. They know the cat's habits and, you know, those guys generally, they know the area super well. So, you know, you're exactly right. Trying to keep up with them, yeah, it's it's well, it's just it, the 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 hound hunters are probably the most physically fit people uh, of all hunters, honestly. Maybe sheep hunters, but you know, sheep guides and stuff like that. But I mean, because I mean, they're they're chasing those dogs, and I mean, where they go, I mean, it don't matter where they go, you're going there. You know, and if yeah. they go off in the, if they go off in a big bottomless pit of a hole, guess what? You're going there too. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. well, that's what happened it's, with uh, with with my hunt. I actually uh, we had a cat that was a, a a really big tom, and they said that they were after this one particular one multiple times. But um, the one time where we cut the track and the dogs were on him, he he kept kind of getting up into the cliffs where he knew it wasn't safe and they'd have to pull the dogs back and hope that he like took off again and repositioned in a new place 
And so it was, it was honestly this game of like cat and mouse where we were mm-hmm. trying to, 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 to get him to go somewhere where it was accessible. And he, he knew the, he knew the game and he was hanging tight right where, where he had safety. Yeah. Do you have any, um, do you have any people that are hunting predators like that specifically with hex that are like, you know, spokespeople for that, that aren't necessarily running with hounds or that are just. Doing well, yeah. It? So, um, a, a guy that I'm, I actually, he grew up here in John Day. I knew him. Um, and he's lived down in Burns, Oregon now. And his name is Jim Walker. Um, he, he is a, a, a predator fanatic, He'd rather hunt coyotes than deer or elk, honestly, and it's it's just, it's a sickness. But uh, <laughs> he is a he is an insane caller. Um, uses hand calls all the time, so he's I mean he's doing different things than everybody else. But I mean routinely he's well over a hundred coyotes every year calling, just calling. And wow. uh, I've got to go hunting with him quite a few times. He's on our sh- on on our show quite often. Um, but uh, yeah, the one thing about with Jim. Um, you know, like I said, I kind of knew him, so he, and he knew me, so he kind of trusted me, and so he, he got us, I didn't even know it, he bought a set, set of hacks, and he calls me up out of the blue, I hadn't talked to him in probably 15 years, he says, hey, you know, this hack stuff's pretty cool with this, with these uh, predators, and I said, yeah, he said, he says, yeah, he said, I don't even hunt them the same way now, he says, I don't worry about cover or anything, because um, down in the, in uh, southeast Oregon, there's a lot of uh, burnt co- country, so it's just yellow grass, and coyotes are in that pretty heavy and and but you know trying to call them in you know out in the wide open like that most guys weren't having success and um i mean jim and i went with him we've actually filmed a couple of hunts with him i mean we just go out um wherever you can see good and you know kind of get a little on a little bit of a rise where you can see you don't hear any, i mean you're just literally sitting in you know six inch tall yellow grass and and uh you know, he's he said back in in the day he always packs a shotgun. He said because sometimes you'll get them in close, maybe twenty percent of the time you get them in close enough to shoot them with a shotgun, but you use a shotgun because they're always running, right? And uh, he says he kills about sixty percent of them now with a shotgun, wearing the hacks. And uh, he said honestly, I should just pack my rifle because they're always standing still when I shoot them, you know. And so um, it's really changed the game for that. And you know, it makes sense because. Uh, back in 2016, there was a major study about how, uh, you know, how canines actually are able to see electrical fields just like birds are. They see it visually. Um, they found the same molecule in the in the eyes of canines that they found in in pretty much all bird species, and they know that's what they they actually see the electrical fields of the earth, and that's how they navigate. Well, guess what? Canines see it too. And it wasn't a surprise to me actually because we see some really crazy. Um, stuff from dogs once in a while, uh, nothing aggressive, but certainly dogs are using that as a recognition factor. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed the game for, 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 uh, you know, the predator guys really has, I think personally, I, I think they're going to find that same, that same thing in cats because cats are the same way. Cats are over the top with hacks. I mean, it's a major, major difference, even house cats. So, <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's kind of cool to, to, uh, you know, come up with something that, you know, Hell, I was just about trying to get closer to sticking an arrow in them. You know, that's what all it was about for me originally, and always looking for some kind of an advantage. And and I've always been kind of a 
kind of an inventive guy, I guess. Um, and, you know, this one has really been fun because it's it's being actually, we came out with it really before science even understood a lot of this stuff. And now science is kind of coming along and saying, yeah, guess what? They can do that. They can pick up those fields and it does make a difference. So how much of that kind is, of a weird, kind of weird deal. How much of that is like forest out of curiosity? Like the fact it, that he's doing you know, some of these, like, National Geographic-type things to where, you know, I know, like, you know, obviously he did some really gnarly stuff and, you know, Rogan ca- caught Rogan's eye before he went on Rogan's thing, but he's been a major uh, believer in the product. I, yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. probably not as long as me, but um, he definitely has. There's very few people that's known about it as long as you, John. You knew about it before we even launched it, so... <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I think if I remember right, you had one of the original white suits. When, yeah, when we oh, still, yeah. Uh, prototype and stuff. So, but no, Forrest is a big piece. Um, you know, he he's of course the 100% science background, and but you know, Forrest is a he's the real deal. He grew up in Africa, and you know, he knows animals. I mean, you know, and he knew that um, you know when he when he was introduced to the hex technology originally. He wasn't one of these guys to say, "No, that's you know, that 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 can't be true." He actually gave it a chance, and you know, he was able to actually go out there and see a difference, which pretty much everybody does, and that's what really got him intrigued. Um, you know, I know, like with lobsters, um, I think Forrest may have had some something to do with that discovery with lobsters because when people were using the the hex wetsuits, they would were going down and lobster diving, and um, you know, lobsters generally try to get you know get away from you so they're hard to catch so you got to be fast and get them before they crawl back in their hole well the guys wearing hacks were going down there and i mean they were just picking them up they weren't even trying to get away from them they were just grabbing them put them in their bag you know and so major major difference and lo and behold then there was a big study that said hey guess what they have electroreception so <laughs> that's another great example but uh, you know forrest was definitely involved in that um uh, how many I don't of the know sea creatures the study but how many of the sea creatures have it more so than land? Well, I think because because of the conductivity of seawater, um, you know, the the electric fields travel much much better in water because it's, it's way more conductive. So, oh. um, you know, so you know, the, it stands to reason that that the electrical fields are even going to be a bigger factor with any marine species. Of course, there's sharks and rays that have uh, what's called the ampullae of Lorenzini, which is actually the organ that everybody's heard about that you know sharks use it to hunt with, and you know they actually are literally picking up the electrical field from the heartbeat. That's a that's been known for a long time, but you know the more we study, I mean, lobsters don't have an ampullae of Lorenzini, but they 100% are picking up electrical fields. No, I mean, it's completely proven. And, you know, the spearfishing guys will tell you that a lot of fish do the same thing because they can just approach so much closer to the fish than they ever could before. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, electromagnetic forces, that's, that's actually one of the four basic elements of the universe. It's everywhere. It's such a major piece of, of existence just in general that it's it's sometimes surprising to me that, that you know, we know so little about it and how it affects the lives of of animals and and ours as well. You know, I, there's no doubt. There's some people that are way more attuned to it than others as well. So, um, it's been a it's like I said, it's just been a kind of a crazy ride for a for a old country boy that likes to bow hunt. <laughs> it really, <laughs> has, so. yeah. Well, that's to be expected though. When you you've always been kind of a 
I don't know, more of a, I don't know if a problem solver would be the right word, but you always kind of just say, oh, you know, what if? You've always kind of thought that, what if and what if? And I think all that stuff always multiplies together and, you know, ends up taking you down all these roads I've seen you go down, you know, which is kind of a lot of... a bunch of them. (laughs) A lot of little inventions and stuff. Yeah, you know, for me, it's it's always... You know, I'm always looking for an advantage. Uh, you know, when I was shooting tournament archery, that's where that's where winner's choice bowstrings came from. Um, you know, back in the day, in a lot of ways, the, the guy that could keep up with his stretching bowstrings and cables was the guy that could win. You know, and and you to be competitive, you had to be a fairly decent bow mechanic and understand, you know, what's going on with especially when we were shooting two cam bows back in those days. Um, you know, I mean, your cams going to get out of time a little bit and you're going to shoot higher or lower or whatever. And anyway, I mean, that's really what caused us to do winner's choice was there's got to be some better way to control this, this movement in these strings. And, and, uh, you know, you know, I'm not completely responsible for that, all that, but, um, you know, I mean, the, the drive to actually cure the problem, I mean, that was a big part of that for sure. You know, we were able to to do some different processes that nobody had ever even thought about before because, you know, we just we don't come at it from the perspective that we know everything. We come at it from the perspective of there's a problem and, you know, let's find a way to fix it. And, uh, you know, rather than just living with it. And, you know, when we did Winner's Choice, that was what happened. I mean, we came out with the, by far the most expensive bowstring ever made. I mean, we were laughed out, of, almost laughed out of the ATA show the first year we went. But, uh you know, we knew we had a, a product that was that was truly different, and you know, we gave away a lot of strings. And guess what? Guys tried them, and it didn't take long to realize that you know you didn't have the the creep problem, you didn't have the the peep sight rotation issue, serving separation, all that kind of thing. And and I mean, gosh, that was back in 2000, and and the bowstring things came a long way since then. You know, I think really people have, would so. have a hard time believing that there were days. Well, I would say there were most days back then when people were trying to get 300 feet per second out of a bow, there was a lot of top-level pros that were bringing, um, they were bringing, like, I don't know, two, at least two bows to a tournament. And like you said, whoever could keep those suckers together for that Mm -hmm. tournament um, were the ones that... um, were the ones that would um would end up coming out on top. I remember vividly seeing like Burley Hall go out there like carrying two bows on the range at an IBO. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, I mean in those days everybody was trying to milk speed out of everything. So I mean we were shooting arrows that were way too light. I mean, gosh, I can remember when everybody had an overdraw on their bow just to try to get speed and and uh you know, I mean I've seen bows myself personally. Matter of fact, I had a bow actually blow up on me once because I was trying to do that. <laughs> I was running super light arrows and eighty some pounds, and I mean it just literally just blew the bow apart eventually. Um, you know, but um, but yeah, the guys who could keep up with it were always the guys that were winning. You know, they really were. And and uh, like I said, back in that day, back then, I mean, it seemed like that was the number one problem that was always affecting me. And it's like, God, if we could just figure out how to make these strings so that you know when you 
set them up, they'd stay there for any reasonable amount of time. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, they came out with the with the solid Spectre strings for a while, um, which they were actually really good for that. The only problem is they were only good for about, I don't know, 150 or 200 shots, and they blow up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. That was a major problem with them, too. So, uh Anyway, like I said, I've just been one of those guys that if, if there's if there's a problem that that I see that that you know if, if there's a way to fix it, I usually try to figure out a way to do it. You know, I mean, everywhere from from bow strings to you know, I mean, I have a, 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 a patented um, arrow reloading system that we need to do something with it one of these days. But basically, <laughs> you know, when I when we were doing the uh, ESPN games, it was a speed shooting thing. And, um, you know, I needed to, to reload super fast. So I actually took a, a, a literal machine gun magazine, um, modified it to hold arrows, and it actually would set uh, just about, uh, I don't know, an inch and a half to the left of the string. So all you had to do to load it was reach around the string, grab the knot, put it on the put it on the string, it would auto-load. So, I mean, I was shooting, um, you know, the last year they did the ESPN games. With that, with that, I mean, I, I was shooting, you know, four discs in nine seconds. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a big difference, you <laughs> know. Of course, crazy then, then, then that was the shoot. last time they ever had the ESPN games, and I had actually had a had a release issue that kind of messed me up at the during the uh, single elimination rounds out there. But, um, but I mean, it was that's another thing. It was just out of the out of the box. It's one of those things that, man, if I could just figure out how to not take that arrow all the way out of my quiver to put it on the bow, you know, and it, and it really did. It was kind of a kind of a fun deal. I still have a patent on it to this day. I should do something with it one of these days. But I remember speed shooting's not such a big thing now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember um, really ch- chasing that whole because um, I was shooting high country high countries at the time, like hatchet cams. I think they were hatchets, mm-hmm. weren't they? Yep. Yep, okay. Little hatchet cams, super fast and and super hard to keep in time. <laughs> <laughs> they were, but um, I remember getting some uh, some of the the very first. I don't know if it was S four, but it was pure Vectran, and mm-hmm. it yep. was it was nice in the in the fact that you actually didn't have any type of stretch. Um, However, that stuff I told people it was a, it reminded me of like a paper clip. If you mm-hmm. took a paper clip, you know, and straightened it out and you started bending it, you know, back and forth, eventually, yep. even though that thing's solid metal and it's, you know, eventually mm-hmm. it just cracks. And that S4 yep. would do that on some of those older style cam systems where they made hard turns. I remember uh being so pumped i was at a shoot because my you know none of my cam marks had changed once i got there and it was hot as heck and and then all of a sudden i remember being at full draw on a target and then all of a sudden just boom that freaking thing Mm -hmm. blew apart and that was it i mean that was it (laughs) yeah no i mean yeah you uh i i i've dealt with that stuff too i mean over the years i've played with just about every kind of bowstring material there was back in the day and you know you you pull back and if you start hearing these little kind of cracking noises little pop crack <laughs> type noise you might want to let down real quick because <laughs> that was usually you got about three seconds before it blew up <laughs> yep so, yep um but yeah i know yeah like i said they're they're all um you know uh, uh 
a lot of materials that came out and and you know there's some lucky for us there's a lot better materials now i mean dyneema changed the game when it comes to bowstrings it just did yeah 100%. um and you know with winner's choice i mean that's you know when i had winner's choice and it's a little different now there i think but when i had winner's choice um you know we we really developed our whole process around around dyneema you know dyneema is the most it's the strongest synthetic fiber there is and um, you know, if you treat it right, you can make a hell of a bowstring out of a Dyneema, Dyneema string. I'm still not a fan of the blends myself um, yep. Yep. because, you know, the, the blends are a, they're kind of a, a convenient accident, actually. I mean, Bob Destin came up with, with those years ago, you know, blending vec, you know, the, uh, the Vectran with Dyneema. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're two very different fibers. One's a high modulus polyethylene and the other one is an aramid. They're completely different fiber families, but they do play together okay. But uh, like I said, for me, I always, uh, if the, the straight Dyneema process correctly is still the best bowstring out there to this day. So. Yep. Yeah, anyway, hey, I'm a tech, fan. Tip, tech tip for the string builders out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your first turkey hunt for this season? Well, this year, I've actually got kind of a big thing planned in May, so I'm going brown bear hunting in May, so I've got to get everything done kind of early. So um, all I've really got planned this year, I'm just going to hunt here. We can kill three birds here in Oregon, so um, so I'm just going to I'm just gonna hit them hard here, try to get as much as I can, um, and then uh, I'm going to be heading after the big bears. Uh, really, that is my focus, honestly. The turkey hunting is going to be going to be fun to do but uh think? yeah i'm i'm uh i've got bigger things on my mind this year a little bit but uh but now we've got really good turkey hunting right here where i live and so um we should be able to get some get some birds i got you know of course myself um caitlin um my future son-in-law will be hunting with us this year and then my buddy andy day so we should be able to get a lot of footage and and everything before we take off after the after the big bear so uh but yeah, no no big no big trips planned this year. Usually I try to do at least two or three other states, but this year I'm just focused on this one. This is a kind of a bucket lister for me, so I'm not gonna get too wound up on turkeys. We're just gonna shoot all that comes in, and and uh, yeah, we'll get some for sure. What about um, when did you book this 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 hunt for your brown bear has it been a few years old or yeah my gosh it's been a saga actually so <laughs> i booked it at the sci show in 2018 um it was supposed to happen in 2020 um up there on the peninsula it's, it's on the it's on the southern side of the alaskan peninsula um where's you know, that yeah so it's um like i said it's it's on the southern side of the alaska peninsula way out um on towards the end and it's um it's some ground that uh the the guide that i have is the the exclusive guiding in in this area uh it's pretty close to where they killed the world record um in uh what 2018 i guess um it's on in that same area it's got you know honestly between there and kodiak they're the biggest bears in the world and it's one, one of the reasons i booked it uh, we're actually going to be based on a boat so we can there's 200 miles of coastline we're going to be going to be cruising up and down so that's the reason i like this one um it was not inexpensive i'd probably only be able to ever do it once but uh you know we're going to be hunting where the big ones live and and we've got the uh, mobility to hopefully really find some good ones um we're going up there actually the way it turned out um so i was supposed to go into in 2000 
And then, of course, I've had this shoulder issue, and I had a, a shoulder surgery in um, in early 2019, which failed on me, and I had to have it redone in December of 2019. And then, so I'd actually sold my spot to my buddy Casey Brooks. And so, anyway, I was actually thinking I was going to have to go, you know, in, you know, probably in, in um uh, you know, 2022, because they only have a spring season every other year. Right. Well, guess what? COVID hit, <laughs> and they canceled the season last year. So as it all worked out, um, they're going to have the spring season this year, and I'm going to get to go, actually going to be on there with Casey and his dad, and so um, it'll be awesome. I mean, I actually am going to know the other guys that are on the on the boat. Casey's a, a great bow hunter as well, and he's done – it's about everything there is to do, and so it's going to be a fun trip. It actually worked out great. Um, my shoulder's good. I can pull. I can pull the poundage I need to now, and and everything like that, and and starting to shoot pretty decent. So, yeah, it actually, like I said, it's been a hell of a saga. But we uh, we're finally <laughs> getting to go. And the cool thing is, is they haven't actually hunted spring bear up there now for three years. So, I know. Um, it's that be one, some toads I think, this year. Yeah, you know, it should be the time to kill a giant. You know, hopefully so. Anywhere, anyway, brown bear with a bow has always been one of my, I don't know why exactly, it's just one of those things that's always been kind of that top of the list kind of thing for me, and, and I, I don't really even know why, I'm just kind of enamored with big bears, and so it ought to be a fun trip, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I mean, it uh, it's top of the, if you're a bear person, which I'm I'm very much a bear person, I, you know, they're one of my favorite things to hunt, honestly. And that's the top of the top of the chain for me. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, you got polar bears, but to me, a polar bear hunts almost more of just a survival exercise than a hunt. Looks to me <laughs> like it's always been my 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 uh, impression. Anyway, I've never done it, so I shouldn't probably judge that way. But but the big coastal brownies, they're I mean, they're they're unlike anything else, and. And uh, they tell me that that part of the world is, uh, I mean, a lot of people describe it as Jurassic Park. It's pretty, pretty crazy. It's pretty remote and, and everything. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm in, actually right in the middle of building bear arrows right as we speak. As a matter of fact, I got my bits and burgers sitting on my desk. And What are you taking? Building some. What are you going with? Um, well, I'm going to shoot my, my uh, you know, my, my mock uh, PSE. The carbon, the carbon riser, um, and um, I'm shooting, um, uh, I'm shooting the Victory arrows. So I'm just, I, I'm not a big micro diameter fan. Yep. So I'm just shooting my regular Victory TKOs. Uh, same thing I hunt elk with. They're going to weigh at about 450 grains. Um, I experimented with some heavy ones too. You know, I thought about going the heavy arrow route, and, but when I actually did some research and, and played around, and by the time I get both those or both those arrows through. I mean, one of them shooting 285, and the other one shooting I think 252. And you know, you figure kinetic energy and all that. I mean, I'm I'm almost the same. I think I'm two two pounds kinetic energy. Uh, kinetic energy is two pounds less with the with the lighter arrows. But I mean, the trajectory difference is massive. So so I, after a bunch of back and forth and testing, I decided you know what I'm just going to shoot the same stuff that I've shot everything else with and. You know, I've taken Eland and Moose and everything else, and so I'm just—I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going to shoot stuff I know works and go with that. Yeah, it's such a good thought process because I did—I don't know when it was, but I did a little video, um, kind of just talking about people weighing out the difference of 
high FOC versus like manageable FOC. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. cause I feel like a lot of people are going way overboard and I've been super happy with, you know, 50 grains of brass, um, you know, a, a carbon axis or an FMJ just depending. Um, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's a lot of people that really overthink that. Um, because some of those benefits only start to happen once you get outside of honestly what most guides in a, especially for that type of hunt you're getting outside of the range that any guide's going to want you to be taking for that type oh, yeah. of an animal you know it's not like they're going to want you taking 80 yard bombs on those things i mean you're going to want to be freaking close and you know that's that sort of thing uh is pretty dang important you know as it as it stands yeah it just really being is. able to know the yardage more so than you know you're going to pick the right shot angle you're going to have the right head and you'll be able to to get the penetration you need based on those two characteristics versus just wanting something that you can launch a hail mary at because you're not going to do that on something like nope. that not a chance. Not a chance. Not not on that one for uh, multiple reasons. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> put everybody at risk. You know. Well, exactly. You're you're you really are, and I mean that's that's an animal there. I mean, it's a, that's going to be about as high a pressure shot as I've taken in a long, long time. Because um, you're right. I mean, you've got to have the got to have the the shot angle. He's got to be within a super comfortable range. I'm not talking about comfortable. I'm talking about super comfortable. So, <laughs> for me, I mean, you know, I'd like to. I you know. Anything 50 and under, I'd feel pretty good about, as long yep. as it, you know, the other conditions are right. I'm not going to really plan on shooting anything further than that. Um, and, you know, like I said, that it's all about that angle. You know, I mean, we're not going to take stupid angle shot or whatever. And that's the that's the discipline side of things. And it's it's it, part of part of filming hunts all the time. You kind of got to learn that because so many times you have the shot and the camera doesn't. And as hard as it is to not take the shot, you have to do that. So. Um, this one is going to be similar except for, you know, the, the consequences of a bad hit can be much, much worse in this one because those, uh, the, you know, they, those things weigh 1500 pounds and they're, they're, they're made to kill stuff. So, you know, you need to be, you need to be pretty confident oh, about yeah. that, but you know, I, the heavy arrows, like I said, I mean, yeah, I'm going to know the distance is going to be close, but I've never actually shot anything with them yet. And it's just. I have so much confidence in the in the gear that I'm running now. I've been shooting pretty much the same setup, you know, that 440 to 460 grain arrow, and you know, shooting, you know, with my draw length, you know, I'm usually 280, 285, usually about where I end up, and um, you know, I'm I'm shooting the, the shuttle T heads, which I've shot forever, and I have a special way of sharpening those too, and they cut a big hole and they penetrate well, and that's that's what I trust and. When it all boils down to a hunt like this, um, you know, it's probably I, not the time to go testing new stuff. I think that's <laughs> no. what I shot mine with. Was it? Yeah, I think that was the same exact setup that I used when I hunted bear too. Something very similar. I I really elected to go with something that still carried good speed, but also could could penetrate well, but still have the speed to keep my gaps tight because a lot of people underestimate with an animal that size like elk and and big bears like that their stride is like three yards so you know if you if you go out and actually test your i tell i told people to do this when trying to analyze 
whether they want this super, super heavy arrow that has unbelievable momentum, or do they want an arrow to where when they take one big step back or a step and a half back and make that shot at 40 or 50 yards, is your super slow high FOC arrow even going to hit the target if you're not able to make that quick adjustment for range or or just in the heat of the moment not pay attention or is that arrow that's going 20 feet per second faster you know in that mid-range to short range going to bail you out of that potential mistake 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean that's it i mean when you're in a hunting situation you know it's not always where you you know you hit him with the rangefinder and he's still in the same spot when you shoot not especially bears because they move all the time um you know, I'm going in the spring, so they're going to be rutting right then. So, I mean, that's one of the big draws to the spring hunt is the fact that, you know, the, the big boars are coming down and, and they're going to be on the beach, hopefully. Uh, that's where most of the groceries are in the spring. But they're going to be moving all the time. And so, you know, I mean, by the time, you know, you hit one with the laser and he takes three or four steps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're if you're shooting slow, you you could make a really bad shot or a completely miss really easy that way. So that was another reason that I, the same thing, I, I decided to go with my regular hunting setup, um, you know, instead of the slower one, because again, I mean, if you know the yardage, the slow, the slower arrow is fine, but if you, you know, you don't always know the exact yardage in a hunting situation. You just don't. It goes right back to where this podcast started, honestly, is, you know, range finders change the archery game. And mm -hmm. it couldn't be more accurate. You know, there's just, there's such a focus right now on really, I just call it extreme FOC. And I think for, honestly, if there are people that are um, hunting in, you know, very fixed position elements, like, you know, hunting on a, a ground blind or a food plot where you really have time for ranging or, um, especially if it's a, a lot bigger animal where, you know, maybe you have some room body size wise to, to make that mistake, but it's just been my personal experience that I've, I've had a lot of things happen because in the heat of the moment, you just, sometimes, you know, you look down to make sure your release is on the D loop correctly. And then you look up and you don't realize, holy crap, that thing took an extra step and a half and I never even saw it. That's the one thing film really does recording everything oh, yeah. that we record. You start to be like, Oh my God. Okay. Well, if I were to, to tell you how that played out based on what I thought happened in the heat of the moment, it would be very different than what I saw that just played out on tape, you know? And I, and I think some of those, oh, yeah. some of those little things help eliminate mistakes. So do you use well, that same, I mean, go ahead. Oh, like I said, I've learned so much from just analyzing film. Um, you know, like I said, what you see in your mind's eye usually isn't exactly what happened. <laughs> you know, it just isn't. And, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, all those years I hunted without a camera when I thought I knew what I was doing. And, you know, particularly with uh, deer and elk, um, is, is it is very rare that the animal is in exactly the same place when the arrow hits him as he was when you released it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working on trying to make my arrows fly as quietly as I possibly could, because I realized that, you know what, they're hearing that coming and that's what they're reacting to. They're not necessarily reacting to the, to the, uh, 
the the bow noise as much as they are that arrow coming at them. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's the reason I shoot six flats all the time is because, in, you know, all the stuff that I researched, I actually found that the six flats is the quietest arrow in the air. And that's the reason I shoot it. And it also happens to be a lot more accurate as well with the six blade head. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you learn a lot from film. You just, uh, like I said, it, it, what, what you see on film is what really happened. And your mind's eye isn't always, uh, isn't always accurate. That's for sure. But, uh, yeah, very true. Know. So for your yeah. turkey hunts, are, what are you, are you, are you, uh, are you pushing the envelope any further than what you normally do or what, well, what's your plan this year? <laughs> You know, um, again, I've got a limited amount of time because, you know, truthfully, I kill most of my turkeys in May generally here. Um, So I'm going to have a little limited amount of time. So I don't know exactly what I'll do. If I get a couple down, I might go ahead and try to shoot one with my bow and an orange vest because that's what I did last year because I I wasn't quite able to to pull my bow and shoot accurately last year for the first part of turkey season. So what I did is – I actually use my 20 gauge and I, as we talked about on the podcast about a year ago now, um, I actually used an orange vest and set out in the open and had some hens come by and I kind of waved at them and they walked past me and didn't pay attention. And then I shot a gobbler uh, the next day doing the same thing. So um, that was pushing the envelope quite a bit for most guys, um, you know, bright orange vest right in the open. The cool thing is I have my tacticam set out on the other other side pointed back towards me so you can literally see what the turkey saw too and i mean i'm a i'm a sore thumb back there man <laughs> sticking out and of course i had just kept my my shotgun down on my lap so i got ready to shoot so i was able to raise the gun and you know i mean first turkey i've ever killed with a shotgun um oh was it yeah yeah i've never killed in, in a turkey with a shotgun before and so uh you know i was using the 20 gauge which honestly really it what 15 yards wasn't much of a limiting factor at all <laughs> and uh but uh yeah so that's that's how I, what i did last year so i guess i guess maybe the next logical thing is is go ahead and try to wear an orange vest and shoot with a bow i guess i guess that's probably about the next thing i don't know what more i can do really <laughs> yeah yeah i know um i got to see our episode that came out um last was it last week or, or something like that yeah for... it's actually it's actually running um, on Pursuit Channel. It's running the rest of this month. Oh, it's okay. a good episode, and it's a good episode. We decided just to keep on running it. So, um, so yeah, there's still lots of time for people to see that one on Pursuit Channel on Hunting Attacks. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm actually when this podcast comes out, I took some of our highlights from last year and built a little video that I'm gonna just put on Instagram in the YouTube channel, just kind of showing some of the hunts that for me just really stuck out for you know especially when i show my family that's from that's from the deep south when i show them mm-hmm. some of that stuff you know they they still don't believe it i mean honestly they still don't <laughs> they still do not they yeah. they just they're like yeah okay um but no the truth is you did as as i promised i went out and and I hunted out of a chair in the wide open for for my first turkey. The second one I did it again because it was fun. But I ended up having so much rain on the day that I was able to go. I was able to go out about a week later and ended up starting to pour rain. So I got in the blind and ended up killing one, killing my second one from the blind. But I do know um, my game warden here 
which I think you've met him before. Um, yeah, he yeah had, I met him when I was out there. Yeah. He's a, a full-blown uh, turkey nerd, and he is way more into turkeys than than anything. I mean, he is one of those people that is just eat up with turkeys. And when I told him, hey, I need help on this deal, I said, I think I can film some of it myself, but I said, I don't know if I can film it all myself. And he's just like, yeah, well, what are you doing? And I, then I said, well, I'm going to try to kill this turkey from sitting sitting in this lawn chair. And <laughs> he kept he kept texting me because I put him in the blind so that I could be in my lawn chair. And he kept texting me saying, are you sure you don't want to just come in the blind? This is ridiculous. And I said, no, I, I freaking trust Mike. I promised him. I said, I'm going to give this thing a try. And then, and then all of a sudden, next thing I know, here comes that freaking gobbler walking up that, walking up that dang lane and, I was I was more nervous on that turkey than I've been I bet you since since I shot my first one at like 15 years old with a bow or something. I mean, I was I felt so naked and exposed and honestly back when I first shot my first turkey with a bow um there were no ground blinds then. This was, you know, way back in like I don't know, I think late 80s. There were no ground blinds. And so I had to sit there like a frozen lump on the log and I remember seeing him like very like looking at me very cautiously and thank God he went behind this massive uh oak tree down there and when he went behind the oak mm -hmm. tree I could pull back and as soon as he came mm -hmm. out from around that I mean I shot fast but that sucker already had me pegged. Like, I mean, it, it yeah. wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of, of wasted time. And he had me pegged sitting out in the open. And that honestly, I had this flashback of that exact <laughs> moment <laughs> when that Turkey came freaking walking up from down in the Creek and he was coming up and I could kind of, I could see his head. I saw his fan first and he was coming up and then I, I kind of turned my head really slow and I I could see uh I could see my buddy in the blind moving the camera uh that way and I'm like okay that's for surely a freaking mm -hmm. turkey and then at that point I realized you're so freaking busted you're so busted <laughs> <laughs> and he came it, by It's a weird feeling the first time you do it buddy it really is I mean <laughs> <laughs> but it works just like I knew it would. Um, and that wasn't exactly a Jake either. Holy crap. That was a bird. Was, <laughs> no, it was wasn't a, a Jake. One. No, that was, that was <laughs> a freaking, that was a one o'clock in the afternoon boss gobbler, just as leery as they get. And I remember it's hard. It's actually hard to, um, to, to play it in the entirety for, because it's on a show, but that sucker came up, and I let him come in. I was hoping he'd do a little show. And he came in and he was, I mean, he was inside of 15 yards. And I drew back. And as I was drawn on him, what you can't really see from the camera angle is that I put the decoys just right on this hill. And when he first came up, 
my shot angle wasn't good because he was coming head on. I was going to let him get in there and strut and then pick my angle. But what he did was he went right on the other side of the decoys and I had the decoys on this little bitty crown. And since I was at the bottom side of that food plot, honestly, I never even, I think I was standing up when I looked to see where I should put my decoys. I was kind of like, where should I put them? And, oh, I'll just put them right mm -hmm. there. Then the, you know, the camera can see him from the blind and I can be in the chair. But once I sat down on my chair, I lost two feet of elevation. And so mm -hmm. once that, once he came in and it's not the size of a deer, you know, I didn't like think about all that. All I could see mm -hmm. was the tip of his fan and his head. So I'm just sitting there like debating, just shooting him in the face. And he was, I don't even know how long I was at full draw, quite a while. And then yeah. I ended up letting down and he came back, he came back and I think I drew again on him, but he turned and was right over that hill again and his fan was blocking his head. So then he ended up walking all the way up to the blind and actually strutted mm -hmm. around within, you know, five yards of, of, you know, the camera blind and then finally, once he got up there, I, I made another call and he came back down and I pretty sure I had to draw on him, if not once, twice there. And then finally the, he came circling around and he was in the wide open to me, to the camera. He's, mm -hmm. he's kind of a little bit blocked by a, a cedar tree that's between him and the camera yeah. but to me there's there's nothing it was wide open and mm -hmm. yeah freaking shot that thing and just kind of sat there in disbelief of holy crap okay <laughs> i just literally shot a a huge uh -huh. gobbler out of a out of a lawn chair sitting yep. in a in a one acre clover plot you know it's a crazy feeling it's a crazy feeling but i mean I've done it so much now. I just, I don't even think about it anymore. I mean, it, but I remember when I first did it, I mean, well, the first time, you know, we were seeing a, a definite difference with, with turkeys all along, but I mean, the first time I did it, man, I had like a hex suit under a ghillie suit. Like, you know, that, <laughs> and it, it's like, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I gotta be like this. And how we called the bird in and I got full drawn killed him. And, you know, it was cool. So the next time I said, all right, well, I'm just going to, but I still got to this ghillie hat because I got to block my, you know, block my outline. So I killed a couple birds that way. And then, then, you know, if anybody's watched the transition of on the show of what I've done, well, then I said, oh gosh, I'm, I'm going to put some branches in my bow to kind of block a little bit. And, and of course I killed a bird. And then, uh, so now it's like, I don't do any of that stuff. You don't need to. It's just, uh, it's, it's such a crazy thing for people that have hunted turkeys before and, you know, they realize that, I mean, a turkey doesn't miss movement. But the thing with hex is, is that it takes away the electrical field that's associated with the movement. Birds see it visually. It's, it's all proven. Um, birds see it visually. And when you take that away, your movement to that bird isn't from a living being. It's just like a branch in the wind or something. And, and they just, you know, you're not invisible. They still see it, um, but they don't react to it. You know? I mean, yeah. most of the time they don't even defan anything. I mean... You know, we shot, um, God, how many birds did we shoot last year? We shot a bunch. Um, I know my buddy Andy, um, we were, uh, he killed two. We actually have one, one particular spot we like to set and, uh, he killed two out of that same spot. Um, and I killed it. We actually did a double cause I was still shot, shooting the shotgun then. 
he shot one um, turkey, and, and the other one just stood there. So, you know, I mean, like I reached clean around behind me, got my shotgun out, and shot him. He was just standing there looking at it. And, uh, yep. you know, but but it's just it's just a crazy feeling on what you can get away with. It's just, it really is. And um, it's interesting, you know, that the guys down south, I, I love those guys to death, and I understand exactly where they're coming from. But, I mean, even to this day, it's like, you won't get away with that on a bird in Mississippi. <laughs> I'm going, well, you know, you got guys that hunt in Mississippi all the time get away with it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't like, the, you know, the, the Florida guys, the Osceola, you don't do that on Osceola. Well, my daughter actually has the second biggest Osceola ever taken by a woman and it was taken just exactly like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just kind of funny. I mean, we've been doing it all these years and showing people how it works and every year, I mean, I miss the NWTF show immensely this year because I really enjoy that show because gosh, guys are coming over showing us their videos and, it's surprising how many of them are doing it just like I do it, you know, sitting set, in a, in a chair. I do always recommend that you set up against something and, you know, just so you have a little back cover, but um, you know, how you were set up against that big cedar was perfect. And uh, you know, that's all you need. You don't need anything else. And like I said, getting the draw is not an issue. So I was, uh, I was really happy that you did that. I knew it was going to turn out that way. I just knew in my heart that you would have, <laughs> that it would work that way. And, and, uh, yeah, but after I saw the footage, being able to draw three times, and gosh, he was there forever. So, uh, no, it was awesome. Yeah, it worked awesome. out perfect. Yeah. And, um, yeah. well, before that one, though, um, I hunted, actually hunted at another spot and had, I had that that darn boss hen. You know, I started mocking a boss hen mid-morning, and that boss hen mm-hmm. came so close. I don't know if, I remember I posted it on my on my social, but I don't know if I sent that footage to you for actual footage footage, but, um, Mm -hmm. that hen was three, four yards from me. I mean, just right Mm -hmm. there and feeding, feeding and fed out around. And she was like talking, she was between me and the decoys, went up to the decoys. And then eventually, uh, three toms came in and they actually, the hen was so close to me. The toms were all actually, they were coming in perfect. If I remember and a group of Mm -hmm. stupid Jake's came in and it was kind of during that time where they don't know if they're supposed to fight or just jack around yet. And I'm like, Oh, Mm -hmm. here comes these Jake's this, this, these guys are going to come, you know, kick their ass. This is freaking perfect. But no, mm-hmm. it's not what happened. They they freaking all ran over together, left the soul hen by herself, and just started jacking <laughs> around and kicking each other for like thirty minutes. And then, like out of nowhere, in true turkey fashion, just kind of just like, oh, uh, hey, let's all run over to that that bean field that's a mile away, and just kind of just started going that yep. way, just kicking at each other and stuff, just like they totally forgot why they, why they were even called in. You know, it was just like ADD that, that's, moment. That's turkeys. <laughs> that's why they're – turkeys are one of the most frustrating things you'll ever hunt because when everything – you think you got everything, you got them figured out, and, you know, I think it's because they got a brain the size of a walnut, honestly. <laughs> they just – yeah, they – the hardest part is getting them to actually come in and commit to the decoy. It really is. Used to be the hardest part was that plus then actually getting one shot with a bow and arrow is just about impossible unless they went behind something. But, uh, but no, that's the frustration with turkeys. It really is. I mean, 
yeah, that kind of situation, you thought, man, you're going to have a turkey fight right in front of you, and it's just going to be awesome, and yeah, then it goes that way. So we had something similar last year. Um, Caitlin and I were out, and uh, you know, we heard these 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 gobbles kind of down below us, so we got our decoys all set up, set up, started calling, and right behind us there was I think eight or nine uh, big toms came in all in a big bunch. Um, they come in and they're they're it's the the craziest noise you ever heard in your life. I mean actually we it's gonna be on the show as well. Um and they're just fighting and they're wrapping their necks around they're looking behind me, kinda of back over my shoulders. I'm filming. And I'm looking back and they're wrapping their necks around each other and just kicking the crap out of each other, you know, and <laughs> thinking, Oh my God, we got we got a I've got my big strutter gobbler decoy and my in my Dave Smith uh, uh that one that sits on the ground, the, the breeder hen. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going to be crazy. We're going to have all these toms right in front of us, you know. And, and uh, they kept jacking around, jacking, and I, pretty quick I heard a hen start calling back there, which, you know, how that goes. And so finally, they all got lined up with the one live hen that's back there, and but they're only 20 yards, you know. So finally I ended up taking the camera off the tripod, and we're in front of a big juniper tree, and I and I told Kate and I said we well, have to try something. So to to where she was, she was right right out in the wide open to them, and I, I was kind of closer to the tree. So I take the camera off the tree. I turn all the way around. But meanwhile, there's all these toms right there, and I finally get on one. And Caitlin shot, but she just she just shot a little bit behind and just knocked some feathers out of his tail. Didn't even hit hit. Uh, didn't even hit anything. But. I mean, it was a really cool, uh, you know, really cool to see all that stuff going on. But, yeah, you know, like I said, in true turkey fashion, just when you think you're set up perfect, they that one hen come in and screwed the whole thing up. So, <laughs> but uh, but it was still fun, you know. I mean, we got to see a lot of cool stuff. And, and I mean, hell, Caitlin, was, there was nothing between her and the turkeys at all. She was, she had to turn all the way around on her chair and get the full draw. And they were all still just doing their thing back there but uh, <laughs> but uh, still made kind of cool footage just because all the all the movement we had to get away with taking the camera off and stuff oh yeah no doubt about it are you doing anything different for your your actual setups i mean are you changing anything when it comes to what decoys and stuff you're using or what is your your go-to i know you're a well, Dave smith person like me Oh yeah, oh yeah. I've got all my decoys are pretty much Dave Smith. I think I've got a couple of avians too, but I usually use my Dave Smith. I've got a my kind of go-to one. Is I've got a, a big Dave Smith strutter, and I put a real fan on it. And um, I've actually rigged it up on. Uh, so basically, I put my strutter, um, you know, like you normally would on the peg. And I, I just again hear me being a, 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 a sort of an invention guy, I guess. So I've got a. I've got a string that comes out to them, and I and I run it through a little. Um, I got a stake that's got a like a washer welded to the top of it, so it's got uh-huh. a bolt. Run the string through that, and then I run it over, and then I've got it actually on a on an elastic bungee strap. This is a redneck as hell. A little <laughs> elastic bungee strap, um, and on the other side of the decoy. So basically, I can pull the string, and it spins him around. And then if I turn it, when I turn it loose, it spins him back around. So. Um, I just took the the bungee and, and took a big, like about a foot long, big spike. And, you know, I just put that on the ground on the other side. So basically I, I pull it and, it and the decoy will spin around. So, you know, that looks pretty natural. And, and that, that's, that's my go-to. It really is. Um, early on, sometimes I find that I've also got the, um, that, that uh, breeder Jake too. And, and 
Uh, matter of fact, the one that I shot with the orange vest I was using, the breeder Jake, actually mounted on top of the hen. Um, and then I had another Daysmith standing up in there, too. So both of those work. Um, I like the fan one because particularly in the areas that it's, that's open and they can see a long ways. Because I think just, just, you know, having them, when they can see the decoys for a long time and they never move, I think adding a little movement to that actually, you know, actually uh, does help. Um, there's no electrical field with it. So, you know, it is a, it's, it's still a different kind of movement. But it's just enough to kind of draw attention to it and a little bit better, I think. And we shot a lot of birds on both of those setups, actually. So, but yeah, I feel probably like. Probably more so with the shot. I feel like early on um, that that breeder, Jake, works well because either a big mm-hmm. gobbler or or honestly even just getting some other jakes out there to jack around with it i think just kind of raise commotion and brings attention yeah. even if even if you do have to deal with a bunch of jakes that come in and you know get frisky for an hour on there it's they still make a lot of noise and i think mm-hmm. it still brings attention even to a lone cruiser gobbler um but but once it seems like once I have one of those times where it seems like the Jake just, I don't know. There's a time where the Jake all of a sudden just doesn't seem like it's effective, but the, mm-hmm. but the yep. strutter becomes very effective at that time. So like I'll start yeah, out, I, I, I'll normally start out with that breeder Jake over the bedded submissive hen. Mm-hmm. And then if I have a hunt where all of a sudden I've, kind of see a gobbler that sees it but is reluctant then at that point i'll normally switch it up and then immediately go to a a a breeder hen on the ground uh the strutter above that with one feeding hen out and then Mm -hmm. then that normally kind of seals the deal there in the you know kind of in those a little bit mid to later seasons yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Um, I, I usually, like I said, I use the the uh, that Jake early. Um, like I said, I have much less success with it late. And like I said, our season goes all the way till the end of May. And I mean, I think I shot well. Actually, the last um, right at the end of the season, it was the last week of May last year. Um, and I actually was shooting a lightweight bow again. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try shooting with a bow. And I was out, I, had, I was self-filming, so I had the, the camera setting behind me and all that kind of thing. But um, anyway, um, yeah, I, I we ended up calling one into that strutter. He came right into the strutter. And anyway, the problem, I got at full draw, and just I got that full draw, he goes behind the strutter. Well, mind you, my shoulder isn't still, I probably shouldn't even have been shooting, honestly. But <laughs> So I'm not holding very, very good. Well, he sits behind that. It wasn't really very long when he came out, but when he came out, I mean, that pin was all over the place. And, <laughs> and uh, that turkey probably doesn't have much of a fan left because I pretty much just cut the whole fan off. He was sideways. I just put the arrow right through that big expandable right through the fan, and there were freaking feathers everywhere. He ran off, but uh, of course, didn't even touch any meat. But anyway, it was frustrating. But uh, yeah, that that was the last week of May and, and the, the strutter seems to work really good late. It really does. And, 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 and just like, just like with you, the, the, that Jake decoy seems to work better early uh, for whatever reason. I don't know whether they're, I don't know. I don't really know why, to be honest with you. Maybe it's just, there's more hens that are actually being bred early, I suppose. Um, Cause by the time they, I mean, in late May, there's all the hens are bred. I mean, those turkeys are just looking for, you know, I think they're just hoping at that point. But yeah, uh, they see somebody else strutted up. I think they get they get jacked up and want to come in. But 
Yeah, I agree to that for sure. I think I think the the Dave Smiths changed the whole turkey game too. That's another mm-hmm. product that's well, I th- rangefinders turkey blinds at one point if you're not a hex believer, the turkey blinds for sure uh are kind of changed the game because no one could you know, everyone was out there trying to uh, to hunt in the open, moving around with a bow seemed like an impossibility, mm-hmm. you know, to where now I think if the blind wasn't there and Hex would have came out, more people would have had to have tried it and been like, holy crap, yeah. this works, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's hard to get bow hunters out of that blind because the blinds are effective. They really are. Um but the downside of a blind is, you know, pretty much where you put it up is where you're going to be. You know, it's it's not like you're going to pick that thing up and go running around and, you know, take the time to get everything set up. You know, it's just the running gun and things completely out of the out of the realm of possibility. And so that's why I like it this way. I mean, it just allows you to hunt kind of like a shotgun hunter with a bow. But, you know, honestly, you're just you're not at a disadvantage, really. I mean, you know, as long as you can shoot halfway decent. Um you're not at a disadvantage bow hunting uh, like you used to be. So yeah. That's what I like about it. You know, it just gives you a lot more flexibility. So, I mean, hunting out of the blind is cool, but, you know, I mean, turkeys being turkeys, just like you said before, I mean, they'll do different things for no reason whatsoever, you know. So, you know, a lot of times back when I was hunting out of the blind before hacks, would hunt turkeys out of the blind, and you'd set it up and do your best shot, but how most of the time the turkeys were somewhere else, you know, they were in yeah. the next field or, or whatever. But. I'm a huge believer yeah. in using trail cameras for turkey recon. I, th- mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like, I feel like so many people talk about utilizing trail cameras for, for deer hunting and all that, but you know, patterning, patterning turkeys and what those birds are doing um, for, well, specifically, where they're flying down and strutting first versus where they're mm-hmm. um where they're doing their where they're flying up i think are are huge helpful topics for people um to be able to capitalize on i went out before this call and i had checked a bunch of cameras that i have out because right now the birds are still very very grouped together and they haven't we've Mm -hmm. got about two and a half or three weeks before our season opens so they haven't started busting apart yet so like one one i think one or two cameras in particular have a lot of the action but i'm not seeing them yet in places that i know historically they're going to be once they're you know once they are broke apart and breeding some so I've actually utilized uh, my stealth cams a ton just to be able to to kind of know when they start hitting some of those those different roost areas when the when the flocks start mm-hmm. breaking up and you know finding some of those strut zones on like rainy days you know there's times where you can uh, if you're looking at your camera and you know what your weather is a lot of times those birds when it's kind of inclement weather they they kind of hang out in the same spots and huddle up mm-hmm. and yeah and and i've made use of that many times yeah i mean we've got cameras out i've got uh several cameras that actually you know the ones that send you the the cell phone pictures and they're really handy because you know whether i mean it's pretty much live time stuff but they're definitely here too there's there's certain places that we hunt them every year 
where the, it's just a strut zone. That's where they like to go. And, and for whatever reason, that's where they like to go. And so we usually honestly try to target those most of the time when we're hunting. And I've even got a few little spots that I have set up, you know, that we kind of prepared specifically. So we'd have enough, you know, enough back cover and things like that. That's usually a lot of times that's where we'll start is on one of those. And, and, and just um, wait until they're really in that area. It. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and cause it's, you know, they're usually fairly consistent, you know, as far as time-wise. Um, I don't hunt them, you know, off the roost very often anymore. Um, I do sometimes. Um, but for the most part, I, you know, a lot of times I don't even start hunting until 11 o'clock, you know, 10, 11 o'clock in the day. Because it, it lets them go down. I mean, they know where all the hens are anyway. At least the ones in our area do. They know where the hens flew up and they know where the hens are. So when they come down on the tree, that's where they're going to go. And so I just kind of let them let them do their thing. And usually by, you know, early afternoon, they, a lot of times they're broke up away from those hens and kind of cruising themselves. And, man, I, I, if you can get one to gobble at you afternoon, he's, he's usually, usually he's pretty killable. You know? <laughs> and so those yeah. are where they go. You know? That's a good tactic. Yeah, my, my um, one of my turkey hunting buddies that's infatuated with it i love it i love turkey hunting but i'm not like infatuated with it but mm-hmm. he he is a big believer in what he refers to as like a gentleman's hunt where you just you kind of get up in the morning you know kind of treat it like a duck hunt where you have your breakfast and do all your mm-hmm. things and and uh let the turkeys do their things and then mid-morning go out there and and start, you know, just go out there and try to wait and listen for where that first gobbler is and then and then reposition and and hunt up, you know. He's he's confident that if you can get a turkey to gobble after lunchtime, then he's as good as dead, you know. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, you don't hear as, ma- as much gobbling as you do in the morning. It's always kind of fun to go out at daylight and hear, you know, I mean, they're pretty vocal at that time, but it's not an easy time to kill them. I've shot a lot of them that way, but I've probably way more often than not they fly down and go with the hens they come to my call you know so um you know so it's kind of a it almost feels like kind of a fool's game after a while but like i said that you know like i said about 11 o'clock or so i mean a lot of times i'll come in into work and you know i'll work the morning and you know just take off about 10 30 and go get my stuff and and head out and just hunt the afternoons i mean i'm fortunate because i mean it's literally five minutes from the house you know but um you know, where most of my hunting is, but, uh, you know, I, that's the thing, man, if you can get them to gobble after afternoon, they, they, number one, they are not, they're not gobbling to call, they're, they're gobbling to try to get a hen to them because they usually they don't have one with them by then. That's really what that gobble is all about anyway, for the most part. I mean, the gobbling was to, to get the hens to them, which is always the, the hard part about turkey hunting is because you're kind of trying to reverse nature, getting him to come to you. Um, but, uh, the thing is, if you haven't got a hen, He's gonna he's gonna be a lot more interested. So it's it's like I said, I've I've done a lot better in the afternoon. We've killed we probably killed eighty percent of our birds afternoon now. I've so. always done really well um, with evening hunts too. I've written articles about it where I tell people you know, g- kind of using some trail cameras and figuring out where they stage before flying up um, yep. can be super productive because they'll normally be there somewhere around an hour before and i remember uh one time i had a hunt and one of my hunters couldn't get here until an evening flight it was it was actually chad mendez 
And he, mm-hmm. I just said, yeah, don't worry about it. And when he came in, it was, I think it was like five thirty or something. And I said, let's let's go get out. I said, I know where these where these suckers are staging up before they fly down. And we we went to this spot. And funny enough, before we even got in the blind, we were about thirty yards from the blind, and we caught a tail fan. And sure enough, here's a bird. And a whole group, they were already right there in that little clover field staging up and they were strutting around and beat us, had beat us in. And it was, you know, 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. And we ended up waiting there and kind of just crouched down and waited and ended up having one of those gobblers just kind of strut right past the blind. We We kind of drew back when he was behind the blind and then when he came out from behind the blind we were able to get a shot which was pretty cool but mm-hmm. yeah doing doing recon for for those later in the day or even finding those those midday strut zones that they like um can definitely mm-hmm. prove at least getting you in the right spot that's what i did with that big one that i shot out of the chair i had several mm-hmm. pictures of that bird coming to that particular plot like in the afternoons and so you know i went there and he wasn't talking he was just somewhere close by and once we once we made a few calls he covered ground fast wherever the heck he was wherever the heck he was at because i know where he came from we he would have definitely seen us getting in or i would have seen him but uh Mm -hmm. we were able to, to just utilize recon to make it happen more so than rely on my calling i'm not i'm not a pristine caller either i'm 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 good enough to get by i say the same thing with elk that's, a, that's about that's about what i am as a turkey caller i, <laughs> I feel like i'm probably a little better out caller than a turkey caller but uh, anyway yeah, i've got a lot more practice with that but um but yeah no i i agree that the thing about at least our birds here i mean they're usually roosting if not in the same tree it's pretty dang close yeah and so i mean you know, with any kind of an animal, if you've got a, a core area, which obviously a roost tree is a pretty core area for a turkey, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to hunt, you know, in that because they will. They'll stage up for a couple hours sometimes before they fly up, and, and they'll be right around pretty close to where the roost tree is. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, now evenings are good, too. Like I said, you don't get the, the all the gobbling and that kind of thing that you normally get in the, in the mornings, but, you know, I mean, you can – it's, it's, it's kind of like hunting elk in a way that um, – you know, it's it's cool to hear them bugling, but it's a lot cooler to get them in where you can shoot them. <laughs> so, <laughs> same thing, same thing with elk. I mean, calling it calling it a bull, just screaming his head off and all that is not the not the normal for me anymore. It used to be years ago without any pressure. We get so much pressure here that um, I think this year I have one. We had one bull that came in. He was a five by six that came in this year and was screaming his head off, and I, I didn't shoot him, but. Um, I think that's the only one we called it. Well, I'll take it back. I had my other buddy, we had a little five point that came in and did a little show for us. But, you know, those bigger bulls, I mean, you're just not going to call them away from those cows. So turkeys are the same way. If they got hens, you, you know, you're not going to call them away from them. So, best thing is, best thing to do is wait till they either leave them or, like I said, get in that core area that you've scouted and, and just wait them out. You know, they're usually the most productive. Well, I'm I'm gonna make sure we podcast when you get back from your bear hunt because that one still stands out to me as one of my all time favorites. Um, being up there on the peninsula and doing that hunt was pretty freaking amazing. And honestly, it's if there's ever a time you need to make sure you pack some some baby wipes, 
uh, <laughs> <that> <laughs> up there yeah, chasing so those that. things is the time to do it. Um, yeah, I re- no, I re- I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We'll definitely hook up when we get back. Hopefully I've got a, hopefully I've got a happy story to tell, you, you know, as with any hunt, you never know how it's going to end up. But like I said, I think I've put all the, all the, you know, all the factors in my favor as much as you, you humanly can. And we'll just hope we uh, don't get an early spring. That's the, that's the, that's the hard one there because if you get an early spring, those bears start moving up the mountains and then they're, you know, it's so thick and everything, it's a lot harder to find them then. So we're hoping that we get to have a normal spring. From everything that my guide's telling me right now, everything's looking pretty normal. And so, you know, when do you head up? On the, down Is it May? Um, yeah, I head up in, I'm actually going to be flying up on the 7th. We start hunting on the 9th. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, yeah, so. So anyway, yeah, it'll be there. Uh, it's ten days. We get ten days on the boat. If for some or whatever reason we don't uh, get one, then um, he's got some some base camps that he can put us in because the next group of boat hunters is coming in. But I can hunt till the end of the season if I want to. But hopefully we won't be that way. I'm hoping to hoping to get one, you know, while we're on the boat. And, and uh, yeah, looking forward to doing that, doing a little fishing, and yeah, it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it a lot. I remember when I went, um, you know, night one, my guide was given pretty much, you know, hey, here's here's the rules of legality in in you know in regards to what you can and can't do, you know, in regards to like self defense, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we're sitting there, and he's pretty much saying, okay. Um, the way it worked at least where we were you can't damage the natural terrain you have to pretty much set up camp where where there's naturally uh openings and stuff like that you know they don't they don't want to see a presence of man right so mm-hmm. like we were set up right on this right on this you know century year old game trail that was just massive and there were like two little open pockets in the alders on either side of that game trail. And the guide's tent was in one. And then, you know, my tent and, uh, and actually I was with Cooper. Darren's tent was on the other side. And oh, yeah. mm-hmm. We were, you know, kind of facing right at each other. So he was telling us in our cook tent was a little bit further down, you know, which is smart to have it away from you. And um, mm-hmm. he said, you know, he said, listen, if, if he's like, there's going to, there's a high likelihood you're going to have a bear encounter with, you know, with the tent. And he said, so if, if the, if you just hear the bear or if you see the bear like brush up against the tent or, you know, if you can, you know, see him sniffing, like all that doesn't constitute firing a weapon at it, you know, he said, mm-hmm. um, if the bear enters the tent, so, you know, if if you see the, the bear coming in, if you hear him tearing the tent, if you, you know, see a claw come in or something like that, then at that point, you know, you're, you have reasonable, uh, you have reason to re, to react to that, you know, and we're, we're just sitting there like, okay. And then he said, you know, major rule is you're never you can shoot out any side of your tent except the front never fire out the front zipper he's like so if if a bear literally comes in the front of your tent full steam 
you need to get out the back. Do not fire out the front. And he said, and and I'm going to do the same because he said, our f- tents are facing each other. So if either one of us freak out and fire out the front of the tent, guess who we're shooting, you know? So it was, it was good, like, safety protocol, right? So this is night one. So I'm, I'm in my, I'm in my tent at dark and making sure like I've got, I think I had like a, I think I had a chest holster and, um, and honestly someone gave me a a handgun to have up there and it was like a Mm -hmm. little chump. I wasn't even doing anything with the one I had. Uh, but I had this thing on me and I had my headlamp yeah, I'm feeling around on my head in the dark and you're kind of sleeping in a lot of your clothes, you know, it was pretty cool. It was in mm-hmm. the fall for mm-hmm. my hunt. And I remember like kind of rolling over in my cot and, and I turned my headlamp on to like make sure I found my z- zipper and stuff. And I was kind of getting all my gear organized. And when I turned my headlamp on, there's like hand sewn where there's like four claw marks on my tent and and he had like hand sewn those four freaking slashes and i go i just i remember going like hey darren i go do you have claw marks on your side and he's like what and i show him and we were i remember just like yelling out like hey dude did you just slice these claw marks into this tent just to like kind of prove a point to all the people that are sleeping in here? And it was kind of like no comment. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a, that'd be a pretty, pretty sketchy thing to see the claws coming through that tent. wouldn't it? That's one of the reasons I'm on the boat. We get to sleep on the boat. So if they're going to get us, you're going to have to swim out there and get us. Which they do. (laughs) They do, but yeah, it 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 probably won't be quite as a quite as likely to happen, I suppose. But uh, no, it's it's like I said, it's going to be quite an adventure. It'll be a lot of fun. And, yeah, and uh, yeah, hopefully have a good story to tell. But uh, hey, um, different subject. Um, you sent me that backstrap. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And we didn't really got to talk a lot about it, but uh, that thing's pretty impressive. It really <laughs> is. Um, for somebody who shot a wrist strap pretty much my whole life i mean i've shot all kinds of releases but for hunting i'm a wrist strap guy and uh you know it took me a little bit of time to get you know get it set and all that because i also shoot a super light trigger i have for years i mean but i actually always shoot it with back tension i you know the 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 kind of a whole premise behind that uh, behind shooting that and once i got it set i'm going to tell you that's a training tool if even if even if even if i never hunt with it um what I did is, you know, I, I messed for a couple of weeks and got it to where, I mean, I was shooting good groups with it. I really was. And, uh, but then I put on my, my regular wrist strap release again. And holy Christ, I, it was unbelievable the, the, how much easier it was to, to get my release to go off the right way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's just uh, night and day, night and day. And I mean, you know, I'm like I said, I'm I'm planning on hunting with my, with the one that I'm used to. I shoot, you shoot a spot hug, uh, wise guy. Um, and I actually shoot a Keaton as well, but I've kind of, on this hunt, I've kind of went back to the trigger just because it's one that, that I've shot my whole life. Again, I, I don't want to be guessing with anything up there. Not that I'm guessing with Keaton, but it's a, uh, just a little more of a fail safe kind of thing for me. But, uh, I'm going to tell you, it, uh, it made a heck of a difference. And, you know, with this shoulder surgery, I'm not holding nearly as steady as I used to. 
um, even now. And so it really has to, you know, it, it, that finger wants to get jumpy when you're passing by it and, you know, you've got to resist that. So what a great training tool. It really is. I mean, it's one that if I get to a point where I'm starting to maybe, you know, shots aren't going off as crisp as I like, I throw the back strap on and shoot eight or 10 arrows and it's right back to, right back to where it's supposed to be. So, well, the good Pretty news, cool yeah, I appreciate that. The good news is, at least from our aspect, is um, our our second wave of backstraps are are coming in right now, and I, I honestly think that we put them on the website. Truthfully, one of the hard things, this is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, it's it's a double edged sword, but with the backstrap that release i'm i'm so like i'm so adamant about that release really changing archery and the launch was amazing the problem was we sold out in like 17 hours and right. what happened was once once they're like sold out and there's this waiting list it's kind of hard to keep talking about it because people are like well what the heck i can't even get one and i i totally understand that and i sympathize with people um, but only so many can, can be made at a time, you know, and we're, um, mm -hmm. we're kind of to the point now where that first, you know, huge wave came in this, the second, um, round is now coming in, which, um, I'm expecting to sell out as well. Um, however, now I'm going to start being able to talk again about that. And one of the things it's kind of cool that it did um, come out and a lot of people got it fast because there are definitely things just like with any new product, there's some things that we've, um, that we've kind of learned to talk about now and identify a little more. And, and I had, um, actually had Jay Scholes, um, was really, he, he was adamant and several of, of the people that work with OutTech have backstraps and, some of the PSE guys got some of this second batch and, and I've, after talking with people who have shot it that weren't with me while I was explaining it and showing it, there's a very common denominator for one of the things that people need to understand about it. And that is that trigger, um, when you shoot it with back tension, that trigger is made specifically I refer to it when I'm teaching as this is like a two stage trigger because a lot of people um, that I work with come from a military background as well. So it's very easy for them to understand what I mean by that. And that trigger was made intentionally to where when you draw back and you're anchored and you've got your peep centered, the trigger is made so that you can squeeze it. You know, you don't, you don't have to slowly squeeze that thing and feel right. all that travel. Think of it just like a two-stage trigger where it's meant for you to be able to take that travel out of that trigger. And then you're at a point to where once you start to pull, then it's going to engage. So one of the common mistakes that I see people uh, doing with the, with the backstrap when they're, they're first getting it and trying to self-teach is that they're trying to squeeze that trigger really slow, just like on mm -hmm. any other caliper release where they're trying to shoot it with back tension or a surprise shot. You know, people get a new release and they'll try to just have finger control on that index finger, like really slow, right. slow, slow, thinking that's what's going to get it to fire. But with the backstrap, 
it fires from tension activation, you know, if you've got it set up that way. So once you're anchored and you're looking through that peep and you decide that you're going to start to pull through your shot, just go ahead and squeeze that trigger and get the slack all the way out of it. You know, you don't have to take mm -hmm. seconds to pull through that travel. It's meant to have that travel so that you know the safety is off. I didn't want it so hairy to where if someone by accident put their finger on the trigger a little bit that it would go off. I kind of wanted it to where you do need to take that slack out um, for that thing to be able to fire correctly. Yeah. And when you do it that way, it's a it's a whole different a whole different beast. And yeah, if if you're pulling through with a back strap and then you switch back over to really any other type of index finger where you're going to get some finger around that trigger and then pull through your ability to do that are going to be night and day. I mean, night and day. Well, I mean, you know, when I first did it, of course, being a trigger guy forever, I was kind of like that guy. It's like, I mean, it's weird to just put your finger on it and pull it back. <laughs> I mean, it just is, but the mentality you have to get is, you know, that you're not actually, see, I think of it more like just taking the safety off. That's how I think of it. So, I mean, I can take a safety off that quick. I don't have to do that slow. So what I do is I just reach around and pull it, you know, until it stops. And then I start activating my back. And and it's the same thing I do with my other release. Only, obviously, I can't pull the trigger. I just lay my finger on the trigger. But then I start to activate my back and, and to make it go off. And so, you know, I, I kind of, for myself, just to kind of get around that, I, I think of it more as a safety than I do a trigger. Yep, because um, it is. It's it's a hundred percent a trafe a safety. Yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a trigger unless you have it set up light enough to where it functions as a trigger. But it is a hundred percent a safety, and it's designed uh, to be a safety to where people can pull back, anchor. They can kind of mess around back there if they need to, and and squeeze that thing enough to where you know it's it at that point it's ready to fire once you pull through it properly mm -hmm. yeah and one of the things that i did and i spent quite a bit of time uh, messing with the length of it too because what i wanted to do is i wanted that trigger when it's or the safety however you want to look at it um but when i had it when it's pulled back and i'm in shooting in the firing position I wanted that trigger in the same place that my other release was as well. Yep. Um, so it's, it's really easy to go back and forth um, because the, 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 the actual method of firing the trigger is exactly the same. You know, I've been, you know, like I said, I shoot all of them with back tension. And even though I have used to shoot fast, I always was pride of myself that I didn't punch. I, I really didn't. I mean, it was still, but I set a light trigger. It takes very little, very little increase in back tension to make my trigger go off. And that's, that's the way I, I like to shoot them. But so I spent a lot of time making sure that when that thing was all the way pulled back, that, that it was in the same position on my finger that I was, you know, with my other release. And so it really, uh, it really transitioned well back and forth. And, and like I said, I've used it as a, as a training aid. Um, and I, I would tell you, it's, it's a great release just to shoot by itself too. It really is. But as a training aid, um, you know, that's, that's really where I saw the, the biggest benefit personally was in that. Cause if, if I ever get to where it's, you know, where I'm struggling to get the shot to go off, I can throw the back strap on for just a little while. And uh, the one thing that I did notice with it is that when I'm shooting the back strap, and I don't know if this is common, but do you hear this from other guys? 
um, that I actually shoot about eight inches to the left at 40 yards. From yeah. Where I'm sighted in with my other release. Yeah, you will shoot left with that because of the direction the jaw opens. Yeah. I okay. Mean, well, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, the way that we made yeah. that to be able to load on um, and the way the hook opens compared to, you know, if you're shooting a handheld release and you're inverting it, you know, that that loop is releasing going down more mm -hmm. so than going, yeah. you know, going a direction. But the way that particular one works, the hook, you know, opens um, differently than the handheld releases. So it's not going to be the exact same point of impact and if you're hitting if you're hitting left with it out of the box then you're hitting exactly the same as as it should be uh just based on the direction of that jaw and it and it has to open that way just based on how the internal components have to function mm -hmm. um to where you know it it works as a pull tension release but yeah it will yeah. um you know, and, and honestly, like even on some of the handhelds, um, you know, some people don't realize that when you're shooting a bow and you're shooting in the valley all the time and you're not dynamic on the wall, you can have a different type of impact versus a release where you're kind of just in the pocket and waiting and aiming mm -hmm. more so than pulling. You know, that that dynamic force against the back wall of a of a compound bow definitely does give variation to um to impact difference so in my opinion learning the consistency of that pull tension on the back wall is a huge identifier for people to know you know why sometimes they miss certain directions because if you don't understand um that dynamic force or your preload on the back wall then you're never going to understand why you have these misses that you can't really constitute what mm -hmm. happened. This really does identify that. It does a hundred percent. And then you're exactly right. I never even thought about the, the, the way the job is, but it makes total sense what you're saying. A hundred percent. You know, describing back to how to, how to, how to shoot and, and with correct back tension is not the easiest thing to do to a new shooter. I've got, my my soon-to-be son-in-law is not really a new shooter, but he's he's kind of new to you know the higher level of archery, and and uh, you know we put the back strap for him too, and it was oh that's what it's supposed to feel like. Yeah, hundred <laughs> you know? exactly. You know? I was gonna take the words out of your mouth because yeah. you can tell people what it is, and there's so many there's so many ways people are describing it. And in my opinion, there's a lot of people trying to describe it that actually don't know what it is because when I mm -hmm. work with them with the release f for the first time like this, you can see it plain as day. If you know what you're doing as a coach, you're going to be like, Oh, that's the first time you've ever felt what a real shot feels like, you know, cause, exactly. cause they have this exactly. look in their face like, Oh, 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 okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but you know yeah, what? Surprising. <laughs> yeah. But that right there is like what you're striving for. That's a hundred percent. When you're trying to learn the best technique of archery, that fe feeling and sensation is a hundred percent what people like me or you are trying to explain to people of what that good shot should feel like it it definitely lets you know right away. I mean, even if it's a shooter oh, uh, that, that's yeah. good and has patience on a trigger, 
Um, I had a guy here that was uh, that was very very seasoned as an archer and had very good technique out of the box, and I was pretty surprised by that. But I remember when I in his shots looked good, but I remember once I gave him one of those and he shot he shot a silverback. When that thing went off, mm-hmm. he was just like, "Oh, okay, that's how you use mm-hmm. it." Because he had one, and he was just shooting it very differently. But I really had to kind of talk to him about preload and talk to him about, hey, this helps you learn consistency on your back wall. If you're inconsistent on your back wall, with some cam systems, it's ho- it's horrible to be inconsistent. Some cam systems have a little bit more um, forgiveness there. But for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, people learning – that preload back tension um how much you can pull and dynamic force on the back cam all that stuff's like critical to to really being the best archer you can be yeah 100 percent. 100 percent. well it all comes back to repeatability and some of that some of those those tensions and, and you know the, the other thing that compounds is when you're shooting up and downhill i mean that's oh, that's gosh. another thing that it's a whole different thing. I mean, I remember when I learned how to shoot a back tension release years and years ago, um, you know, I didn't know what a good shot felt like until I finally, it's, it's like I said, once you feel it, you go, oh, okay. And then, you know, then you get on a, you know, a, 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 an uphill shot and you can't get it to go off and a downhill shot goes off too fast. It's all about that, that, that uh, you know, that uh, dynamic pressure. And so the thing about it is if you're consistent all, all the way through and all those elements, you're going to be way more accurate. So oh, yeah. it's just the way it is. So, but, uh, no, I think I, like I said, that backstrap is something that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to change the game for a lot, a lot of people. It really will. Cause it allows them to know what a good shot's supposed to feel like. And then you can <laughs> learn how to do it. Whether you, whether you just keep shooting the backstrap forever and like me trans, transition over to the other, you know, I actually have always, you know, set a little back tension in, even, you know, before I'm, so I'm not going from complete nothing to, you know, I've got a little back tension that kind of helps me to hold better. Right. But then it's just a pretty minor amount is all it takes to make the shot go off. And, uh, which is one of the reasons I shoot super light trigger. But, uh, um, like I said, with that, it's just, like I said, my future son-in-law, like I said, that's, it was, it was cool to let him run that because it's like, Hmm, that's what back tension feels like. Cause it's hard to describe it. It's yeah. A, it's a it feeling is more than a description, you know? So well, once you, once you know what it's supposed to feel like, then you can, then you can, you got something to work with and until we, you feel it. It's really difficult to understand. Yeah. Very true. And I actually just approved, um, it shouldn't be too far out, but just approved, uh, a miniature uh new wrist strap for uh for women and youth anyone that's got a a slightly smaller wrist diameter than what comes standard with them right now so i'm kind of looking forward to that to being able to you know have some people with smaller wrists be able to to shoot that thing without having it slide off yeah for sure for sure. So, well, like I said, you came up with something there, man. <laughs> it's, it's impressive. It really is. I was uh, really fortunate that I got to actually have one. I think before they even went on sale, I actually. I, yes. I, I thank you for putting me on that list because. Uh, yeah, been, I have something else I need to run by you too. I've got I've got another uh, category kicking around in my head that 
I, I need a little bit of feedback on, but I'll talk about, I'll talk to you okay. about that on another phone call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Well, well it's uh gosh, we've been on this a while. Yeah. Um, sorry about but, that. Uh, Take up all your day. Hey, not a, not a problem. <laughs> this is a, this is fun for me. We don't get to do this near often enough. So. I know. But, uh, well, hopefully, you know, turkey season is coming up. Hopefully we get a lot of people out there and, you know, heck, if uh, you want to, if you want a different turkey experience, I mean, you know, give it, give the hex to try. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I just did a film this weekend on my turkey loadout and showing it specifically in the layer, you know, in in its layering order, which is always like a mm-hmm. question, you know, you know, where do you put yeah. it? It's like it does, you know, it doesn't matter where you put the hex. I personally put it um, underneath my underneath my outer layer and above my, you know, my, my wicking layer. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it works perfect there, but yeah, I show pretty much show my whole Turkey system, how it's laid out. And, uh, so Hex will, Hex will be part of that. And if you're new to it, then make sure you check out that video and you'll, uh, you'll know how to make sure you're doing it right. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we didn't get a lot into the science this time. I think a lot of people kind of already know that, but for anybody out there that doesn't understand exactly what we're talking about, I mean, you know, hop on our on our website. It's hexllc.com. Um, we have a we have all of our different parts of hex there, so you'll want to go to the hex hunting page and uh, check out the. We've got one specifically about turkeys right now on there, and you'll understand uh, you know how the advantage works. Is it? It really is a it really is a game changer. Honestly. I agree. For bow hunting, it's a complete game game changer. But even gun hunters. Even shotgun guys. I mean, it, it's it allows you just to get away with so much more than you ever thought possible. It's just uh, like I said, we've this is year eleven for this thing. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's crazy again how time flies. It is. It, <laughs> it really is. is. Wow, dang! You're right yeah, on there yeah. with knock on. We're kind of on the same timeline. Never even put two and two together. Yeah, we launched in 2010 as well. Actually, <laughs> we've got. We, we launched in, technically, we launched at the ATA show in 2010. Gosh. Is when we actually launched. So, yeah, been that long, 11 years. Yeah, so, that means I was walking around the ATA show with, like, the very first knock-on shirts that same year. Yep. Yep. That's yep. crazy. No, uh, getting, it really is. Old. But one thing about it, there's there's not that many gimmicks that last 11 years. <laughs> I mean, with the, the amount of, amount of I mean, because we really don't get people that use it that have complaints. We really, really don't. So, uh, like I said, I mean, anybody out there that wants a unique turkey experience, um, that's that's it. Uh, just try it. I, I promise you, you'll like it. Yeah. Well, cool, man. We'll touch base after your hunt, and I appreciate it very much. For sure. Well, I appreciate it, John. And as always, like I said, we don't do these often enough. So, uh, <laughs> anyway. All right. Knock on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com